Does that ever struck you as odd? That as Christians, we spend so much time talking about the death of our founder. I mean, we had uh, someone coming on to church for a while who just couldn't get over the fact we kept singing all these gory, bloody songs about Jesus dying on the cross. And he's got a point, hasn't he? I mean, no other religion celebrates the gory demise of the person who set it up. Isn't, isn't that a bit odd? I've been chatting to a number of people about Christianity recently, and, and they're very keen to look at Jesus the guru or Jesus the, the person who might help them. I think our culture is looking for a self-help spirituality but, but they're not looking for a crucified saviour. And of course, the problem is when we come to the accounts of his life, the gospel accounts, they just major on his death. So in Mark's gospel from chapter 3, verse 6 of a 16-chapter book, Mark has the religious leaders plotting to kill Jesus. In Luke's gospel, a 24-chapter book, chapter 9, verse 51, Jesus resolutely sets out for Jerusalem, where he's going to die. In John's gospel, 20 chapters in the book, chapter 11 starts the last week of Jesus' life. Half the book is about that. And what we're going to do over the coming weeks as we move to Easter is we're going to walk with Matthew through the last week of Jesus' life. And I'm praying that as we do that in the morning, in this season of Lent, a time when Christians have traditionally thought about the temptation and the suffering, the death of Christ. And then in the evening, in a couple of weeks, we're going to look at a beautiful passage from the Old Testament reflecting on Jesus' death, Isaiah 52, 53. That as we look at these scriptures over the, the coming weeks, we'll find our hearts deeply moved by our precious King who has died for us. That's what I'm praying for us as we look at these passages together. And as we come to, to Matthew, as, as we move into his account of Jesus' death, Matthew presents us with two great contrasts right at the start. First, he shows us the plan of God versus the plotting of people. Have a look at Matthew chapter 26 and verse 1. When Jesus had finished saying all these things, he said to his disciples, As you know, the Passover is two days away, and the Son of Man will be handed over to be crucified. All these things, the things Jesus has been saying, refers to the last of Matthew's five blocks of teaching. Jesus has just been teaching about his return to judge the world. But now the teaching is over because the Passover is two days away. Not just any Passover, Jesus' Passover. At the time when the Jewish nation remembered how God had rescued them from slavery in Egypt and saved their firstborn sons by a Passover lamb dying in the son's place, so now Jesus, the ultimate Passover lamb, is going to die in the place of his people. He's already told his disciples three times that is why he came. But, but still, verse 2 of Matthew 26 should take there and should take our breath away. Look what Jesus says at the end of verse 2 again. The Son of Man will be handed over to be crucified. The Son of Man. Just look one column across to the bottom of page 995 to Matthew 25 verse 31 and see who the son of man has last been described as Matthew 25 verse 31 when the son of man comes in his glory and all the angels with him he will sit on his glorious throne all the nations will be gathered before him the son of man the one before whom 
The Bible says every man, woman, and child who has ever lived will be gathered and be judged. That's because he is the one, according to Daniel's book in the Old Testament, God has given this, Daniel 7.14, God has given him authority, glory, and sovereign power. All nations and peoples of every language worshipped him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion that will not pass away. And his kingdom is one that will never be destroyed. The Son of Man. There is no one more powerful. There is no one more glorious. No one more worthy of worship. The Son of Man, through whom all things were made. By whom all things were made. For whom all things were made. You, you ever done that thing, I think most of us do it, where you imagine what it would be like to be a member of the royal family? Have you done that? You thought, what would it be like to be a member of the royal family? I mean, that would be quite fun, wouldn't it? You know, everyone bowing down to you and you sort of knowing who you are. I mean, that's about as high and glorious as we get in our country. And when you meet a member of the royal family, you're, you're a little bit afraid, aren't you? A little bit nervous? You don't want to get it wrong? You know, Hi, Liz. That would be wrong. Okay. When she came to our school, we had to do, it's ma'am as in ham. Yeah. Or spam, it's not mom as in harm. Hello, mom. No, ham, ma'am. Hello, ma'am. When you meet the royal family, they're glorious. It's a bit nerve-wracking. Well, this is what Jesus, it's what Matthew says about Jesus. Matthew 24, 30. All peoples on earth will mourn when they see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of heaven with great, with power and great glory. And that might sound a bit far-fetched to you. That this man is the son of man. But time and time again in his life, Jesus proved that's exactly who he was. As he healed the stick, and as he he's calmed a storm, as he raised the dead, as he blazed with glorious light on top of a mountain, he demonstrated he was the son of man. No teacher was wise enough to catch him out with their questions. No disease was terrible enough to be beyond his healing word. No demon was powerful enough to resist his command. No force of nature was beyond being tamed by his voice. Jesus is the Son of Man. You see, our, our finite minds can't look beyond the creation that we're part of into eternity and grasp fully how glorious and majestic and powerful is the one who has always existed, the Son of Man. And this is the plan of God, that the Son of Man will be handed over to be crucified. Not by men, that the, the words here primarily suggest this is handed over by God. God hands his Son over to be crucified. Actually, more than that, we're going to see the Son willingly goes to his death. The hands that flung stars into space to cruel nails surrendered. Because if there's no life more glorious than the Son of Man, there is no death more humiliating and cruel than crucifixion. Uh, the victim was, was nailed to a, a rough wooden cross, brutal, big nails driven through wrists and through feet. Sometimes they'd be, they'd be lashed to the cross as well, sometimes they weren't. Often beforehand they would be scourged with a Roman scourge, a whip that would rip the, the skin off their backs. Many people died from the blood loss before they got near the cross. But, but when you were hanging on the cross, it wasn't, it wasn't the nails that killed you. 
No, no, what happened was you, you hung down on your body weight and your chest is compressed and slowly you cannot breathe. So you have to drive up on the nail driven through your legs to gasp for air again. And then you cannot hold yourself in that pain any longer and your legs spasm with cramps so you collapse down onto your arms, up and down, till finally you can go up no more And in burning agony, you asphyxiate. So after Jesus died, they they broke the legs of the other prisoners to speed the process up. The Son of Man will be handed over to be crucified. The glorious Son is the suffering servant. Now, there aren't any human stories that can illustrate this, are there? There are no human stories equivalents to to captivate you. There are no human examples I can give you today to to motivate you. You see, if, if you're not moved by the Son of Man being handed over for you, then I can I suggest you might not know him. You you certainly don't know what it is to be loved by God, because this is the heart of God's love for you. Jesus said he came to do this for you. In Matthew 20, 28, he says, The Son of Man came not to be served. That's what you'd expect him to come. To be served. No, he came to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. His life given the place of ours. You see, the true agony of Jesus was not the physical pain, but the spiritual torment of bearing the sin and rebellion of his people of taking upon himself the punishment from God that you and I deserve. That's why, however great our our personal suffering, we will never taste the true agony of the cross. Because only one person in history was qualified to take upon himself the sin of the world, the Son of Man. So we can be freely forgiven. Freely welcomed back by the God we've rejected. This is love. Not not that we loved God, but that he loved us and gave his son to be an atoning sacrifice for our sins. It's such a contrast, isn't it? The plan of God to the plotting of people. Look at verse 3 and 4. Then the chief priests and the, the elders of the people assembled in the palace of the high priest, whose name was Caiaphas, and they schemed to arrest Jesus secretly and kill him. Then... Verse 3 starts with, it's almost as though Matthew's saying, now God's plan has been made clear, people can do their part. And Caiaphas, he was high priest in Jerusalem between 18 and 36. And here he gathers the, the spiritual leaders of God's people. The men who memorized the promises of God for a living. The men who meditated on God's love as, as a spiritual calling in the temple day by day. Now meeting secretly furtively, slyly. Everything about the language Matthew uses here is to tell us their minds are made up. The, The verdict is decided. There is no need for evidence. There is no need for justice. There is no need for anything other than a way to kill Jesus. Verse 5, but not during the festival, they said, or there may be a riot among the people. Oh, they don't fear God. They fear people. I mean, that's what they hate about Jesus. He, he challenged their authority among the people. 
Time and time again, he refuses to accept the status quo in Matthew's gospel, to bow down to their self-importance, to reinforce their petty rules, rules that robbed people of a real relationship with a loving God, that put barriers there that God never intended to be there. You see, the glorious Son of Man proclaims God's plan that he should humbly die for others. And the grubby religious leaders plot so they can grab power for themselves. And the easy thing is, as we read these accounts is we, we look down upon them. We think, well, they're so different from us. But, but if you've ever thought life would be just a bit simpler without Jesus around... If you've ever thought that you wanted to call your own shots in your life, to ignore what you know is God's word and God's will for you, if, if you've ever, like me, in the secret places plotted disobedience, if you've ever feared people more than you feared God, and so maybe like me you've acted in ways to please people when you've known that they're ways that displease God, then you and I have acted from exactly the same heart motives as these religious leaders. We're no more innocent of Jesus' death than they are. But God's plan is that the Son of Man was handed over to be crucified for you, even though you're like that. That he would suffer in your place. That he would die your death as the Passover lamb. Your creator took upon himself his righteous anger at your sin. His plan was to do that because there is no way you could have done it yourself. The plan of God, isn't it beautiful? The plotting of people, isn't it ugly? So how will you respond? Here's the second contrast Matthew gives us. He shows us priceless beauty and he shows us the price of betrayal. Look at this priceless beauty, verse 6. While Jesus was in Bethany in the home of Simon the leper, I presume he's actually Simon the ex-leper, otherwise Jesus and his disciples have been richly unclean and there have been things dropping into their soup. Maybe he's been uh, healed by Jesus in the past. And his house at Bethany would have been on the edge of the, the Mount of Olives o- o- overlooking Jerusalem. He's in this house, probably for dinner, and we read in verse 7, A woman came to him with an alabaster jar of very expensive perfume, which she poured on his head as he was reclining at the table. This isn't a little little dab of Chanel number five under the neck, which is, I've discovered, 90 pounds for 100 milliliters. Now, this oil pours down over his head and his, his shoulders, his robes. The smell would have, would have filled the whole house. It's like when you knocked over Granny's eau de toilette in her bedroom. And there was lavender everywhere. The smell would have filled the whole house. And in the Old Testament, kings and prophets in, in the first half of the Bible, they were anointed with oil. It was an outward sign that they'd been chosen by God to rule and to rescue his people. Actually, the word Messiah, Christ, means anointed one. This woman, Messiah's the Messiah. That's what she does. She anoints him. Matthew doesn't bother with lots of the details. We can read an account of this event also in Mark and John's Gospels. And so we know that when it says very expensive perfume... It means, as Gareth said, it would probably have cost about a year's wages. This is perfume between 20 and 30 grand, 27,500 pounds worth 
of oil poured over his head. This is actually her most treasured possession. It's likely to have been her inheritance, her family heirloom. This is the equivalent of her life savings gone. That's all the, uh, all the disciples can see, isn't it? Money wasted. Verse 8. When the disciples saw this, they were indignant. Why this waste, they asked. This perfume could have been sold at a high price and the, the money given to the poor. Sounds so worthy, doesn't it? So charity, so good. But actually, it shows they've totally missed who Jesus is and, and, and what he's come to do. They've missed that they're sitting there with the Messiah and this is the moment of his death. Do you look in verse 10? Do you, do you notice the way that they haven't, they haven't bothered Jesus with this? <laughs> Jesus, aware of this, said to them, Why are you bothering this woman? She's done a beautiful thing to me. Oh, they're, not, they're not bothering Jesus. They wouldn't be bold enough to say that to him. No, they're just probably muttering loud enough for her to, to hear what they're saying. Well, Jesus won't let his followers get away with putting each other down in the, in the quiet in, in ugly ways, especially when they're so wrong. She's done a beautiful thing, he says. She's done a, a noble thing, an admirable thing. Verse 11. The poor you'll always have with you, but you will not always have me. When she poured this perfume on my body, she did it to prepare for my burial. Well, we don't know whether she realized that's what she was doing or, or whether more likely she just wanted to worship Jesus, to, to show Jesus how much she loved him, to show in a, in a totally inadequate way how much she felt that, that she owed him. Did you think that she poured the perfume over his head? She thought, well, that's done that then. I'm finished for the week. That's my worship over. No, her heart was just pouring out to Jesus as the, the oil poured over his head. Usually you'd anoint a body for burial after the person had died. But Jesus is as good as dead. She, uh, she anoints him in the shadow of the cross. I like to think maybe, maybe two days later, as Jesus hung on the cross, amongst the, the stench of the sweat and, and the blood, there'd still have been the, the, the lingering sweetness of this perfume. Even maybe as, as Joseph of Arimathea lowered his body gently into the tomb, he, he might have just got a little whiff of this woman's worship. Isn't verse 13 precious? It's, it's precious because we're doing it now. Verse 13, Truly I tell you, wherever this gospel is preached throughout the world, what she has done will also be told in memory of her. You know that? You're fulfilling the Bible this morning. At the heart of this gospel, this good news of Jesus, is the message of that perfume. It speaks of Jesus the Messiah, God's anointed King, the Son of Man, who is Jesus the suffering servant, who was handed over to be crucified, the one who came to die for his people. You see, Jesus who came to rule you and to die for you, to take your sin to his grave, so that it's dead and buried in God's sight forever. Have you ever... Have you ever considered giving a year's wages to Jesus? Ever considered that? JF, have you ever considered giving, say, all your savings or all your allowance for a month to Jesus? Maybe giving him your life savings, adults, or that family heirloom? I haven't. And I found myself wondering why this week. See, I think my, my routing is 
my spending is, is too rooted in this world like the, like the disciples. That the way I use money isn't beautiful because it's not sacrificial. It's not wholehearted. It's not extravagant worship like this woman. It's calculated. It's limited. It doesn't actually leave me holding an empty jar. It leaves me holding quite a full jar where I've skimmed the top off and given that to Jesus. I keep the rest of myself. It just so happened I got a leaflet actually through this week from a Christian mission organization that pointed out that research shows that only 2% of Christian income is given to Christian causes. 98% goes on other expenditure. Are you happy with that? And just when you're thinking, oh yeah, but I give over 2%, along comes this woman and she gives everything. That's the problem, isn't it? See, don't we need to see in our hearts that the priceless beauty of our Lord and Savior more? Don't we need hearts that act with, with priceless and beautiful worship, practical and costly worship? See, if you want to know who you're worshipping, that the best place to start isn't what you sing on a, on a Sunday, but it's where you spend your money during the week. It's our bank statements rather than our, our playlists that reveal our hearts. And wouldn't, wouldn't the world sit up and listen to the beautiful message of Jesus if we were like this woman? For instance, what do you think is the best thing you can hand on to your kids? A deposit for their house? Or a memory of a parent who spent, expended their lives for Christ? That the model of someone who, who worked for their comfort? Or the model of someone who is an extravagant worshipper with all they had? Because the Son of Man has been handed over to be crucified for you. And if you don't see that, then, then a life spent on him will just seem too high a price. If, I, if I'm honest, I think I, I suspect that I find it easier to be like Judas when it comes to money. See, Judas shows us the, the price of betrayal. Look at verse 14. Then one of the twelve, the one called Judas, went to the chief priests. He's one of the twelve. Back in Matthew 10, the 12 apostles are given by Jesus authority to drive out impure spirits and heal every disease and illness. Judas is not a hanger-on. He's not a fringe attender at the disciples' group. He's been at the heart of all Jesus has been doing. He's preached in Jesus' name. He's healed in Jesus' name. But that is not enough for Judas. We don't know why he goes to the high priest. I mean, he takes the initiative, doesn't he? He goes to them. Maybe he's disillusioned that Jesus isn't this, this great conquering king. Maybe that's what he imagined. But Matthew presents us with a much more typical reason why Judas goes to the high priest. Verse 15. What are you willing to give me if I deliver him over to you? So they counted out for him 30 pieces of silver. What are you willing to give me? Jesus has got a price, an amount that Jesus is worth to him. And if they'll offer more than Jesus is worth, then he'll take it. 30 pieces of silver. But back in the Old Testament law, in Exodus chapter 31 verse 21 verse 32, 30 pieces of silver was what you gave to someone to compensate them when your ox accidentally gored their slave to death. It's what a dead slave is worth. 
That's why in Zechariah, 500 years before Jesus, when God's people are actually pictured rejecting his promised king, it's for 30 pieces of silver. And, And the Lord says this, the handsome price at which they valued me. Is that all I'm worth to you, says God? Now, that's all Jesus is worth to Judas, the price of a dead slave. A slave that didn't really live up to his expectations. You see, I suspect Judas's main problem was that he, he treated Jesus as someone to make his life better, to do what he wanted. For Judas, it was all about what Jesus is worth to him. How he made Judas feel. How he helped Judas. And in the the cost-benefit analysis of life, he was worth as much about as the same, maybe, a good slave. A good slave. what's What's your price? What are you tempted to betray Jesus for? I think we've all got a price. I suspect I've got a price somewhere in my heart. Maybe it's the security that your friends at work give you or your friends at school give you. So you sell out on Christ in the office because he he offers you more than than their relationships are worth to you. Maybe it's a a lifelong relationship with with that man or or that woman who loves you. So you sell out of Christ on the dating website and you you go for her or him even though you know they're not a Christian because they're, they're worth more to you than Jesus is. Maybe it's simply money. You just can't imagine not living in the house you like or giving away the pension pot you've built up or the freedom to buy the toys for your kids or for you that you want because money is more precious to you than Christ. What, what is it that you sell out for? And I, I think the Lord might say to us, is that all I'm worth to you? Really? A three-and-a-half-bedroom semi in Chessington? Is that all I'm worth to you? See, in my experience, most people reject Jesus Christ not because of an intellectual problem. They reject him because he's just not worth it. In the end, they think other things are more valuable. Or like Judas, they, they want a slave who does what they want. So, so they neither see him as the son of man, that the one who's got the right to rule all of their life with total loyalty, nor do they feel their need for him as, as the saviour who is handed over to be crucified for them and die in their place. So who, who do you want to be like in this passage? Because do you see how Matthew structured it? You see, there's the leaders plotting, and there's Judas's betrayal. They seem to come under the heading of the Son of Man will be handed over to be crucified. The leaders plotting, and there's Judas's betrayal. They're, they're the ugly world we live in. The world of self and power and a price and what I can get for me. And in the middle is a beautiful thing. A beautiful thing done by this woman in the midst of an ugly world. Who do you want to be? Because it's actually only when we grasp verse 2. It's only when we begin to somehow get our heads around the scale of the love of God who humbled himself to come from the greatest height of glory and experience the lowest depths of depravity for you. It's only when you see how beautiful that is 
for you, the love expounded for you, when that moves your heart, that we will pour out our lives to him, that we will respond doing a beautiful thing for him, that we will live beautiful, costly, sacrificial lives in the midst of an ugly, selfish world. The Son of Man will be handed over to be crucified for you, for me. Let's pray together. Lord Jesus, we, we know where we are with you this morning. We know not one of us here, <laughs> even the preacher standing here, can say that our hearts are truly like this woman's, that our hearts are not more like the elders and the chief priests, maybe even not more like Judas. Please write upon our hearts the beautiful truth that the Son of Man was handed over to be crucified for us. Amen.